Hello, it's Kirsty here. Uh, just to say, this is part of a special series called A Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism. So please feel free to go back and listen to the earlier podcasts. If you can't be bothered, just dive in. Can you sing? Kirsty, you can't sing. Yeah. Can you? Yeah. I can do most things to some level. <laughs> that is a brave claim. <laughs> One that invites being put to the test at some point. <laughs> Hello, my name is Kirsty Styles, and this is episode four of our mini-series, A Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism. This episode is called Acceptable in the 80s, where me and James Meadway explore how Margaret Thatcher implemented neoliberalism in the UK. Britain in decline. I just can't. We who either defeated or rescued half Europe, who kept half Europe free, when otherwise it would be in chains. And somehow people began to look to the state for their standard of living, to the state to solve their problems rather than solving them themselves. Put your savings in the bank and they'll nationalize it. Put your savings in your socks and they'd nationalize socks. You'll turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. So, James, in the last episode, we talked about how neoliberal ideas swept the world and came to influence the policies of many countries and international institutions. Uh, This time, we're going to focus on the influence of neoliberalism on the UK. Uh, But first off, can you just remind us again when neoliberal ideas made their way into politics here? Well, this this starts with actually it's sort of the obvious answer is Margaret Thatcher and her government first elected in 1979. But I think we have to be clear that really things had, had started shifting this way beforehand when you had the Labour government in 76 uh, having to go to the International Monetary Fund for a loan uh, and then being forced to implement the sort of early version of some neoliberal ideas around controlling the money supply, around uh, introducing austerity. So that's when things start to swing against Keynesianism, against the idea that government can manage the economy in, in particular ways that dominated uh, the post-war period. But that's that's when things start to switch. And Thatcher's elected in 79 with lots of promises to reform how the country uh, runs. And then really when she's in power and she wins you know, successive elections, becomes increasingly radical uh, in terms of her uh, policy agenda and creates and is part of creating what we now come to know and love as neoliberalism, this sort of idea or sets of ideas about how governments should really avoid running the economy, if at all possible, that free market should be allowed to determine how society operates, uh, that corporations are best placed uh, to know both their interests and the interests of wider society. So these sets of ideas, this new rules of the game emerges from the late 70s, early 80s onwards. Okay, so our our rough definition, those rules of the game around neoliberalism that we've already talked about uh, are, you know, individual choice, free enterprise and a limited role for government, uh, as you've already alluded to, except for, of course, in promoting markets. So if Thatcher was a neoliberal, uh, how did she actually go about promoting individual choice? Well, there's several different elements to the kind of Thatcherite uh, programme here. One of them, of course, is is very substantial tax cuts, particularly for the the wealthy, a series of significant tax cuts. 
tax cuts, taking the top rate of tax from way, way up into the you know 70s and 80s uh, percentiles were very wealthy, as, as was in the 1970s, uh, right the way down into basically a two-tier system. So top rate of tax under Thatcher ended up being 60% from the, the mid-80s onwards. So that was a very substantial change. And that's part of the ideology. You say that you, wealthy person, know better about how to spend your money than the government does, and you spending your money will have this nice trickle-down effect because it will create jobs and work and investment and opportunities for everyone else. That was the theory. Of course, in practice, you get a massive increase in inequality over this period of time. Huge, huge acceleration in wealth uh, going to the, to the wealthiest. So that's one part of it. The other bit is things like deregulation of how uh, financial markets and capital markets operate. So the removal very, very early on in her first government of controls on movements of money across international borders. So getting rid of taxes, getting rid of uh, controls and, and again, particularly wealthy people and corporations being able to move their money around. That's how she starts to promote uh, the idea of individual choice and free enterprise and all the rest of it. Okay, James, so you, you mentioned free enterprise there. Can you give us a little bit more of an explanation about this thing that they like to call the Big Bang? Okay, I, I sort of touched on this. This is the um, what happens in 1986 with the process of tearing up a lot of the established rules and, and customs about how the City of London, the financial centre, uh, operates and making it much easier for uh, corporations and financial companies to trade with each other and to also at the same time introduce electronic trading, which is a huge, huge boost for financial markets. It means you can very, very rapidly uh, make trades and transfer money around the world and all the things that are very familiar today in terms of how financial markets operate. So that's a very big shift that takes place in 1986. And that helps pave the way, of course, for the, for the crash of 2008. This is a long process of an expansion of financial markets on the basis of this kind of deregulation or re-regulation, if you like, that takes place over 20, 30 years and gets us eventually to the crash of 2008. OK, and what about the limited role of government in, in this uh, Howell story? Yeah, of course. I mean, this is the other bit that, that's striking a uh, for Thatcher, this is the uh, increasing privatisation. She starts off with a fairly limited programme of privatisation, just a few bits and pieces that are going to be sold off by government. By her second term of office, this becomes a huge uh, programme of selling off, well, uh, the utilities, so water, gas, electricity. Uh, later on, when you get to Meiji, you see the railways being privatised. Great chunks of public investment made over a long period of time simply sold off to the private sector. With a big fanfare, it's all supposed to be popular capitalism. Uh, everybody's going to own a share in these enterprises rather than, you know, having the government own them and run them uh, for the public benefit. They'll be run for private profit and therefore be, in theory, much more efficient and, and much better uh, at providing a service. So privatisation is a huge part of a programme or becomes a huge part of a programme. What was their campaign? Was it the you've, you can have some of that, Sid? Or yeah, that's it. The Don't Tell Sid was the one uh, for the gas sale, which is from the top of my head, 1986, where the government breaks up British gas and sells off chunks of it. This is all kind of fairly nonsensical and basically the number of people who own shares now as individuals has actually declined fairly substantially since the 1980s. So this popular capitalism never really uh, took off. That's not what happened. You get a big concentration of wealth rather than the distribution of wealth as a result of all this. But the ideology is very, very clear. You privatise, it's more efficient, you break up uh, inefficient government monopolies and everybody's happy as a result. And that's the theory. 
Okay, uh, but government spending actually went up during the Thatcher years. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's the weird. The other weird bit here, of course, is that whilst you're doing all this, an important part of what Thatcher's government's doing, semi-intentionally, is is basically breaking up British industry. I mean, you, this is deindustrialisation. This is a huge loss of manufacturing jobs during her time in office. You're talking many millions uh, of jobs disappearing uh, over this period of time. And when you have lots and lots of unemployment, particularly long-term unemployment, being created in former industrial areas, uh, and you know, you throw in things like the, later on the pit closure programme and that sort of stuff. Government spending goes up because you have to spend money on unemployment benefits. So this whole business that Thatcher's going to shrink the size of the state relative to the economy doesn't quite happen because she's spending a fortune on uh, basically unemployment benefits for all those people that are being pushed out of work as a result of her economic policies. Well, sounds a bit counterintuitive. Anyway, so the, you've mentioned um, some of the deindustrialization, the loss of jobs. Um, how did the miners' strike specifically relate uh, to this and, and uh, Thatcher's kind of battle with the trade unions. Does that all fit into this? this well, yeah, story? This, this is part of the process. I mean, Th- Thatcher is, is elected on a definite programme and re-elected on a definite programme of restricting trade union power. So there are successive laws passed. I mean, there's a really quite a large number of laws passed by Thatcher and Major to restrict the ability of trade unions to go on strike, to ballot their members, to conduct themselves in lots and lots of different ways. So you get very, very repressive anti-trade union legislation way, way above what anybody else in certainly in Europe in Western Europe at the time uh, has in terms of restrictions on trade unions so it's a real clamp down there and she has these series of basically set piece battles with particularly powerful trade unions and well organized groups of workers of which the miners are the outstanding example it's a classic sort of classically neoliberal uh, thing to do that trade unions are an absolute bête noire for all the neoliberal thinkers certainly for someone like Hayek completely opposed to the idea of collectivism that people can band together that solidarity is a good thing absolutely and ruthlessly opposed to that, Hayek urges uh, the Thatcher government on and Thatcher herself on in her battle with the trade unions precisely because his vision of society and the neoliberal vision of society in general is, well, as Thatcher said, it doesn't really exist. There's only individuals and any form of collective action or collective solidarity of social solidarity has to be broken up so the free market can operate properly. Okay, sounds like we've got Margaret Thatcher to thank for our lovely, lonely London lives. So did the right to buy um, similarly combine uh, a number of the neoliberal principles? Well, exactly it, and it's good that you mentioned uh, our lonely London lives because, of course, you can't really understand the, the housing market today without reference to right to buy, which was introduced again by Thatcher in the early 80s where you say to council house tenants that you are able to buy the house that otherwise you are renting, basically from the local council, from the state. You're able to buy this at a reduced rate. Uh, this will make you a, a homeowner and this will turn you, you know, probably over time, it should turn you into a bit of a conservative. It's almost a sort of social engineering thing that's going on here. It doesn't quite work like that. But it's a huge transfer of public resources into private hands. And it feeds directly into this problem that we now have, of course, which is a, a dire shortage of, of decent uh, available housing. The, those of us having to rent in London and paying very, very high rates as a result. This is a consequence 20, 30 years down the line of policies like right to buy. I think you'll find, James, that actually the mould and the mice are a quirk of uh, of the uh, house and it's actually a selling point. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> um, so, um, obviously, you've painted, painted quite a compelling picture there, James. Uh, but, you know, this is the 80s. This is ages ago. You know, if anybody's been re-watching This Is England ahead of the, uh, the This Is England, the 90s, um, you know that it was all, you know, untrendy and pretty dismal back then. 
Has this really had any lasting effect? Well, it's, it's a huge and, and shocking impact on, on society in terms of what is acceptable uh, in political, polite political circles, that everybody has to be a bit neoliberal, that your default setting for how mainstream politics operates is basically free markets are always right and government intervention is always bad. And you can see this rhetoric absolutely, absolutely everywhere. Thatcher herself, of course, says that her greatest single achievement is Tony Blair, is New Labour, that you then get the Labour Party, which had otherwise been opposed to the kind of neoliberal settlement that emerges, uh, switches into saying, well, we're going to have to accept this. This is just how the world works. And we are now going to ourselves be neoliberal. And this is not just Labour Party here. The parties of the left and centre-left, right the way across Europe, going into America with the Democrats, start to behave and act in a neoliberal way as well. They just accept the settlement. They think the world has changed. There's no going back to the 70s. Uh, those battles are now lost and we have to operate in a different way. So it's a huge impact on society here, I'd say. Okay, James, well, thank you very much for another really interesting instalment in our um, series. We'll be speaking about this again very soon. Thank you. Thank you. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, an independent think tank and charity that campaigns for a fairer, sustainable economy. Find out more and get involved at neweconomics.org. We'll be back at the same time next week. (laughs) 